Hey guys, great news for the holidays. Seasons 1 and 2 of Raise the Dead are now available on audiobook at raisethedeadpodcast.com slash complete. You can use Audible credits for it. I highly recommend that you do if you're like me and you got a few of them stacked up. Go back to 1960, Kennedy versus Nixon, one of the most misunderstood elections in American history. Find out how it connects to the big upset of the 2016 race and why the Trump campaign took their inspiration from the Kennedys. Then get season two, 1964, the biggest power vacuum in American political history and what it says about the election we just saw. Both audiobooks come with exclusives not heard on the podcast. RaiseTheDeadPodcast.com slash complete. Get seasons one and two on Audible right now. The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Michael Bolick, The Joe Q Car Show, Frank Latuka, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Jim Wright, Will Harris, and Craig. Hello and welcome everybody to the Friday, December 18th edition of the Politics, Politics, Politics program. My name is Justin Robert Young. We got a great little episode to send you off into this holiday weekend. Maybe you're getting a little last minute shopping done. Do you dare risk the prime? Or do you venture out into the world? Obviously, we are still in a in a, a very, very dangerous situation when it comes to COVID. But on the upside, everybody is sequestered in their homes. And so some of the blizzards that are currently hitting the Northeast, well, they can't hurt you anymore. You can just peer out and watch as those delicate, delicate snowflakes fall. All the while, you're maybe uh, sipping a rich cocoa and listening to my dulcet tones as I uh, broadcast here from gray but temperate Oakland, California, a a city now on its second lockdown. But we got a show here for you. I have a question. You know, normally I I plan out these segments and I have a large point that I want to make. And that's like the point I made on Wednesday about whether or not Donald Trump is out of gas. Whether or not he doesn't want to turn the car toward 2024 because he just doesn't have it in him anymore. But his interaction with Mitch McConnell after that has me asking a question. Who needs to fight? And the counter, who isn't fighting enough? We also have a mailbag uh, rich with many, many awesome emails, up to and including uh, some history 
on why we vote for presidents and vice presidents at the same time, because I apparently totally botched that, and whether or not I should be making fun of the Pod Save a Blanket Boys and their money incinerator of a fundraiser for Democrats in Congress. All that and an interview setting the stage for our Georgia runoffs. It's all coming up. But first! Here is the tweet from Donald Trump. It is, quote, tweeting a mail, a Daily Mail article entitled Trump's allies slam Mitch McConnell for congratulating Joe Biden. And then the 45th president of the United States adds his own postscript. Mitch, 75 million votes, a record for a sitting president by a lot. Too soon to give up. Republican Party must finally learn to fight. People are angry. And I felt like that was something that taps into an element of our modern politics that I want to explore with you guys. Indeed, while we will certainly have our mailbag that uh, uh, will occur next week, I would love for an above average return here on this one question. Who is fighting the most and who needs to fight more? Because Donald Trump believes, and this is something that has been echoed throughout conservative media and might well be the rallying cry and the cornerstone of not only sites like Breitbart and and the like, right? Gateway Pundit and some of the ascendant elements of conservative media over the past four years, but really has its its germ in Rush Limbaugh, in Michael Savage, in Sean Hannity. People for whom believe that there are elements of the Republican Party that capitulate, that don't really stand up for the people, that are there to say the right things, but don't ever do the thing that matters. And you've seen this certainly on some of the the social side, right? Uh, Pro-choice, pro-life arguments. But also, you see it on the fiscal hawk side. The idea that people will come in and, and they will say all the right things when it comes to budget spending and deficits and balancing the budget, blah, blah, blah. But then they won't fight for what they really got sent to office for. But the key here in what Trump is talking about is kind of a second level beyond that. The idea that the other side is not fighting fair 
And we need to make sure that they don't win. Even if that means doing things that you would otherwise think are beyond the pale. It is a suspension of norms because the other side has gone too far. Now I can feel the gentle breeze of all of the liberal listeners here nodding vigorously. That indeed, this is what the the Republicans want to do. They do want to go the extra mile. They do want to shatter any and all sense, any and all semblance of, of, of normalcy in our modern political world. But this is also something that I see on the left. Specifically, the progressive left. The progressive left constantly talks about how they need to push their centrists harder than ever because otherwise they won't fight for what matters. They won't fight for Medicare for all. They won't fight for the Green New Deal. They won't fight for the fact that we have created a permanent underclass for which we now need to stand up and fight for, fight on the side of. In fact, this has kind of been ingrained into even mainstream liberal thought. The idea that the Democrats are too nice, that they play too fair, that they are dealing with these bad faith, corrupt to the bone Republicans, and it's about time that we stopped being polite and started getting real. So here's my thought. Is there any cross consensus for which we can find on who fights good and who fights poorly? Or is this just psychology? Is this the fact that we all believe the grass is greener on the other side. That we all ignore our own party's wins and we double count the misses. We are constantly building up our own mythology to believe that our path is harder. Our opponents are without a shared decency. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to your email right now. I want you to open it up and write to theyoungamerican at gmail.com. And I want you to write me where your political allegiances lie, whether or not you believe the side you most identify with is fighting hard enough, and who do you think is doing the best job of fighting for their cause. And I will share those results with you on next Friday's episode. They asked me, did I go deep in my bag? And I tell them, I showed it. You can always send us an email. TheYoungAmerican at gmail.com the young american 
at gmail.com. I've had that Gmail address since my first Gmail invite. That I think might have been my first Gmail address. I don't know why. Even before I did politics, I just wanted to be the young American. Young American, he was the young American. Answering your emails all night. JJC writes, uh, first you brought back the parade of wrong opinions, and then the pole dance. I love it. This is music to my ears. So, I, I, I brought back those two things. And they will continue to pop back here and again. And and I started to realize partly why. Number one, I, I did want to continue to evolve the show. But also, I... It's hard to do those kinds of silly things when we were at the tenor of tension that we were at leading into the election. Now, I don't know whether or not that's true. I know that's how I felt. You know, I, I was thinking about this the other day that maybe... This is just like my version of a, a a team that goes to the finals but doesn't win or goes to the playoffs but doesn't win. And the old saying is like, well, you got to get used to the pressure. Maybe I got to get used to the pressure before I know when to weave in that kind of silliness into the show. But it's back now. It'll 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 dot its way through from now until the road to 2024. Jason writes, can you explain to me why this lame duck period is so long? Today, they're going to vote on the Electoral College. It would seem that uh, by the, that the time between the election night and today is already too long, never mind an additional 40 plus days. At the very least, there should be some sort of cap on the power of the president uh, uh, that uh, the cap the president has in this period. Make them have to do their pardons before the elections and curb their ability to throw landmines in the way of the incoming administration. Uh, Jason, the <laughs> the idea that two months or two and a half months, really, is so long is really funny. Because my entire life, this has just been like, forgotten nobody thinks about how long this time period is it's just kind of like well you know you got to give people time to get everything together and then there's the holidays so this is just sort of a dead period anyway and for most elections leading up to 2016 this period of time was kind of a a, a thankful respite one where we could disconnect a little bit. Uh, we could we could take some time off. We all got really hot during the election, and so now we don't want to think about politics. I have never in my life thought of this period of time as too long. Now, should the president's power be capped? Eh, I mean, I guess maybe, but then we get into a bunch of other questions on exactly, like, when is it appropriate to do it, like, uh, whether or not you would like the ability for your president's uh, uh, power to be capped or your party's 
uh, president to be uh, powers to be capped when they're leaving. You know, uh, as for pardons, I'm all for those being curtailed. In fact, I had it on the list of things that I wanted to talk to. And maybe the next time I talk to Heaton and Briny, uh, uh, we can we can revisit this. But the whole concept of pardons seems a little too royal for me, for my taste. So I'm down with the idea of, of maybe you get three. <laughs> How about that? You get three. One, two, three, that's enough for me. That's my rule on pardons. Aaron writes, Oh, also, uh, technically, uh, before we get to that one, Jason, it's not the lame duck period. I believe it's the interregnum is the period between two administrations. Aaron writes, you argued. I don't know why I gave it that kind of thunder. Uh, Aaron actually did the Lord's work here. So uh, uh, Aaron cleaned up something that I said last week. So let's give Aaron his respect. Aaron writes, you argued that the vice president was originally the runner-up, and this isn't really true. Yes, that happened in the election of 1796, but that was due to a mistake on the part of the electors and Aaron Burr and Thomas Jefferson were at cross-purposes in 1800, but that's due to Burr being an opportunist. The musical Hamilton, for all of its entertainment value, is not a great source for strict historical accuracy. So why do we really vote for president and vice president at the same time? When the Constitution was being written, people viewed themselves first as members of their own state and then in alliance with other states, kind of like Texas, at least how they think of themselves today. Part of the struggle with the Constitution was convincing the people who would become Americans that they were Americans first and Virginians and Rhode Islanders second. Because the electors who actually vote for president were considered to be much more independent than we like them to be today, it was assumed by the framers that most states would vote for a member of their own state over a better qualified person from another state. Therefore, they gave each elector two votes and specified that one of those votes had to be the person that wasn't from the elector state. This rule is still in place, which is why Dick Cheney registered as a resident of Wyoming during the elections of 2000 and 2004, even though his primary residence was in Texas at the time. The obvious hope being that if you shield for your state, your second vote would probably go to a deserving person, and that person would accumulate the most votes overall. From as early as 1796, parties ran to people and the intent was that one state would throw its second vote uh, away on somebody who wasn't the intended president or vice president, but because of poor communication, too many electors didn't vote for a Federalist vice president and Jefferson snuck into the role. Four years later, the plan failed again, but this time, because no states threw away their second vote, leaving Burr and Jefferson tied, Burr tried to upset the agreement by getting the Federalists to vote for him. Like everyone else, I love the show. I'm sorry if this goes on too long. No, thank you, Aaron. And and for everybody who keeps writing me these emails that are like, hey, can you explain this thing to me? I know I could Google it, but I'd just like to hear you say it. Now you know how you actually get your information. You don't Google it. I Google it poorly. I summarize what I just read on Google. I then say it 
irresponsibly into a microphone. It goes into thousands of people's ear holes, and at least one or two of those people actually know what they're talking about. They write me an email, and then I read that. Ladies and gentlemen, education in 2020. Melissa writes, I think with governors, I've observed that most people's thought process is that governors don't have the authority to do the things that they've been doing. So they're upset at the fact that they are overstepping their bounds. Mind you, maybe that is not the whole picture, but is there a way that the governors could have not so much more power, but maybe go through a process that would assure the public that they have the authority to do what they do? I've also seen this on a city level, uh, the disconnect of what is allowed and what isn't allowed. So it'd be nice to have some clarity. Well, Melissa, this is something that is variable. It's variable by state and city and commonwealth. But yeah, you would imagine that there would be some kind of mechanization and process by which a governor's power would be unchecked. On the other hand, governors are about as autocratic a position as we have here in America. Or at least we we are comfortable with that level of autocracy. We get fussy when it happens on the federal level. But in general, if something bad is happening in the state, we tend to clap more when the guy does a thing. We don't like it when the governor says, well, I got to go to the state legislature on this. We like it when they just take care of it, specifically in emergencies. And realistically, unless you're having a debate when it's election season, if you go to your your local Piggly Wiggly and ask them, hey, uh, shouldn't we give three cheers for the governor because uh, he balanced the budget. No one's going to know like, oh, well, yeah. You know, it was in the red for most of his predecessor's term, but he's done a lot by cutting subsidies that were otherwise being unused. Anyway, I'll take a six-pack of steel reserve. I'm off to the mill. Like, there's that really doesn't happen. The way that we judge governors is by their reaction to crises. You know, uh, uh, either those foisted upon them like natural disasters or situations that are, you know, explosive riots or uh, uh, civil rights, stuff like that. How do they handle the, the will of the populace versus the instigating incident? And this is kind of the worst of all those situations because the will of the people is in many ways, split. The will of the people is we need to get over this virus as fast as possible. So I don't care if a a policeman digs a hole and, and gives me a snorkel and then fills the hole back up for the next six months. I'm fine living like a potato if it means that this virus gets better faster versus uh, I have freedoms. Remember the freedom thing? You know, free country. So you're, you're just going to shut things down and open them up willy nilly. Like that is something that is fractured right now. And so the governors, which by and large try to respond to the will of the people are doing things in crazy ways that confuse and frighten everybody. Andrew writes, 
I really appreciate your calming perspective on all the now mostly rejected court cases post-election. I'm hoping you can also bring a bit of that reality uh, to the calls for Pelosi to not seat congresspeople who signed on to the Texas Attorney General's case. I feel like joining a suit that used proper channels is not sedition unless you're arguing that the suit was intentionally in bad faith and everyone who signed it knew it. But even then, I don't think we want Congress or anyone to be in the business of trying people's motivations. I say this as a blue-leaning voter who remembers how well changing the rules worked out for the Democrats last time. Uh, Yeah, well, A, Pelosi would never do it, and B, you're right. If we are going to be about turning the page, then we got to be about turning the page. So if Mitch McConnell is out here saying, and he's taking the heat uh, from President Trump for for saying that Biden is the president-elect, then I think it is incumbent on Congress to say, let's go ahead and hit the reset button as much as we possibly can. Considering the shameful things that happened over the last four years. Up to and including the fact that we didn't get a COVID relief situation before the election because we were afraid about how it would affect the election. Christopher writes, just a clarification on how dumb the Pod Save America fundraiser was or wasn't. The Get Mitch or Die Trying campaign was to remove the head of the Senate, not money to the actual opponent for Mitch's seat. They split that money between seven of the most likely to flip Senate races, but that didn't include Kentucky or either Georgia seats initially, although their fundraising is now split between the two Georgia runoff elections. Oh, those blanket boys always moving the goalposts. Always moving the goalposts. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed, that money was for Mitch McConnell's opponent. It was also for other opponents. But Kentucky was among those seats for which the cash that was raised went. Now, the question is, does the inclusion of those other races make this a more or less embarrassing exercise? Well, let's do the math, shall we? This according to the initial press release that they put out on July 23rd when they launched Get Mitch or Die Trying, the fund will support Democratic uh, Senate campaigns in Alabama, loss. Alaska, loss. Arizona, win. Colorado, win. So we're two for two. Georgia, we'll see. Iowa, Loss. Kentucky. Loss. Maine. Loss. North Carolina. Loss. South Carolina. Loss. Texas. Loss. So, yeah, they they gave money to uh, 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 Sarah Gideon, who lost to Susan Collins. They uh, uh, gave it to McGrath, who lost to Mitch McConnell. Amy McGrath. Uh, this this was embarrassing. This was a gigantic amount of money that produced very, very, very little in the way of benefit. Like they they won in the race where they were uh, uh, they were gonna put the second L in McSally. 
end in Colorado where a former governor was running against a caught in the middle, you know, a, a, a theoretically purple Republican that wound up uh, uh, getting too close to Trump in a state that was increasingly turning against Trump. Every other race they lost unless they win one of the Georgia ones. But even then, the the race I, I believe they were putting money toward in Georgia was Ossoff, and he lost that. So maybe he wins now in the runoff, but based on the numbers, they would have lost that as well. So if we're going to say that a 2-5 and five record raising the unholy amount of money that they raised is not an embarrassment, then we can say that. But otherwise, the, the, the pod save a blanket money raising thing was, was bad. It was dumb. Jack writes, President Trump has been increasingly floating the idea of running again in 2024, which leads many to wonder what will happen to Vice President Pence. As a conservative Christian myself and a student at Liberty University, I just know how hard the Trump campaign worked to secure the evangelical base, which is one of the main reasons why Pence was selected in 2016. In 2024, do you think that Trump picks Pence as his VP candidate again to appeal to the evangelical base, or does he go with another pick in an effort to appeal to another group of people? My bet would be, if he runs again in 2024, that he does pick somebody else. Just because in the parlance of Bruce Pritchard, sometimes you need a new paint of coat. Just something to differentiate. Will he pick somebody that is also evangelical-leaning? Maybe. In fact, Maybe it's Ted Cruz. And finally, Jeff writes, Wild thought, you can call me a wackadoo if you want. What do you think about the possibility of Biden appointing one or two Republican senators to his cabinet, specifically from states that have a Republican senator but a Democratic governor like Maine? If the senator takes the appointment, then the Dem governor would appoint a new senator to serve until the new statewide elections when they would have to run as an incumbent. It would make Biden look like a uniter that he seems to crave and help flip the Senate to the Democrats. It may sound like a crazy idea, but it happened in my home state of Kentucky under the previous governor. Matt Bevin sought to flip the state Senate and appointed some Democratic state senators to higher paying jobs elsewhere in the government and then got Republicans to fill their seats. Just a thought. Interested to hear yours. Jeff, you're a wackadoo. This would not happen mostly because the jump between cabinet position in a Democratic White House comes with a lot more peril than going from a Democratic state senator, which is you know, not necessarily something that might even fit in in the broader Democratic Party because you're probably going to be more right-leaning in Kentucky than you would be in, let's say, the federal level. But you would effectively need, you need like a Jeff Flake. Jeff Flake would do that. Maybe even McCain. Probably not McCain because he was really committed to the Senate. But like if you had somebody like Jeff Flake now who was facing an uh, like a big primary and could effectively switch parties with great fanfare, then I think you'd have a shot. But short of Mitt Romney, 
I don't really know who would that who that person would even be. And also Mitt Romney's never going to face that tough of a primary in Utah. You would need somebody who is a, a dead end Republican. Somebody that really believed that they were going to get run out and they were going to get run out within the next two years. And somebody willing to switch parties. And there ain't a whole lot of those people right now. If you would like to be a part of our mailbag, you write into the young American at gmail.com. We do have some breaking news here for you as I record on Thursday. French President Emmanuel Macron has the coronavirus. In good coronavirus news, it appears that overfills on some of the Pfizer vaccine means that we have more doses than we initially thought. And Joe Biden has tapped a North Carolina environmental regulator to head his incoming EPA. A reminder that if you want to support this show, you can do so at takepoliticsseriously.com. However, there is something that I, I very rarely mention, which other ways that you can support the show monetarily, if for whatever reason, you're just not a, a Patreon kind of guy. PayPal.me slash payjury. P-A-Y-J-U-R-Y. That's how you do it via PayPal. Venmo is Justin-Young-20. And if you are old school and you want to send me a check, you can do so at P.O. Box 10853, Oakland, California, 94610. You can also send me other stuff uh, uh, there too as well. I've gotten some lovely Christmas cards this season. So thank you to everybody who has uh, taken it upon themselves to do that. Also, if you would like access to our premium content, i.e. the Monday episodes and the Thursday episodes, but don't want to go through Patreon and want to do it through a one-time contribution, please email me at theyoungamerican at gmail.com. And if you'd like to contribute to the cause and all the things that I have listed thus far are not up your alley and you would like another way, then email me there and we'll make it happen. TheYoungAmerican at gmail.com. Thank you to everybody who makes this entire crazy scheme go. I look forward to making you proud in Georgia for these runoffs. My guest today is a professor of politics at Oglethorpe University in the Peach State of Georgia, where he will give us a historical context to the rise of the suburbs and how they will affect this upcoming Atlanta, Georgia runoff. Please welcome to the show, Joseph Knippenberg. Nice to be here. So uh, uh, I'm I'm very excited. I, I'm I'm going to do some of my first traveling since uh, uh, everything shut down during the pandemic because I believe that this runoff election that we are going to have is certainly going to be the center of the political universe and and a bit of a epilogue to this epic 
two-year odyssey that we have been on. Uh, but to do that, to get better and understand exactly what I should be looking for, I wanted to bring on people who really understand this. And uh, you are somebody who's written about the importance of the suburbs, the rise of the suburbs. So let's start uh, on a more meta level. What role have the suburbs traditionally played in Georgia politics? Have they always been this powerful? Well, Atlanta has always been, you know, the, I don't know what you call it, the 200 pound gorilla in, in Georgia politics. Yeah. And uh, there was a time when Atlanta politicians were kind of handicapped in statewide races because uh, no one else in the state liked Atlanta. They, people from Atlanta <laughs> are, are from, from the Georgia point of view, not really Georgian. Sure. Uh, so uh, it's kind of like, uh, I suppose, Paris and France. You know, you're either Parisian or you're not, and everyone from the provinces doesn't like the Parisians, and the Parisians uh, tend to return the favor. So generally speaking, what you had in in the Georgia State Legislature, for example, or in the governor's mansion would be uh, someone from outside of the Atlanta metropolitan area. Uh, And this is even true before, uh, you know, the civil rights era. Yeah. so it was, you know, they, they always didn't like Atlantis. And then uh, you had the you know, sort of good old boys, uh, Georgia politicians. They didn't like Atlantis because they were Atlantans and they didn't like Atlantans because they were black. Yeah. Well, a reachable number of them were black. So it was it was um, it was it was both even even beyond yeah. the racial divide. Uh, yes. Uh, the, 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 the white boys still were singled out as being fancy pants because they were from the big city. Yeah. So I think uh, <clears throat> what's happened is. The Atlanta metropolitan area has grown and grown and grown. And I uh, that so now, just in terms of sheer numbers, it it dominates the state politically, and there's nothing. Uh, so being from Atlanta is no longer a statewide political handicap. Gotcha. Uh, and you know, I suppose it's telling that uh, when Brian Kemp was looking for someone to uh, take up the rest of Johnny Isaacson's uh, term. He went to Kelly Loeffler, who had two advantages from his point of view. One was that she was extremely wealthy and could potentially self-finance a race. Yeah. Or, you know, donate a, 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 a substantial portion of her wealth to fund her race. And secondly, she was, she tracked the kind of uh, suburban woman. Yeah. Uh, and even Isaacson himself was, was from the Atlanta area. And that, so he was unusual as a statewide politician. So that's had some, but uh, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. That's interesting. Uh, Just to take a a quick detour to Leffler, because from the outside looking in, there is kind of a question of like, wow, is is she just sort of like F troop? Is she the gang that can't shoot straight? She, she gets into, she gets to Washington, immediately gets into a, a, a insider trading scandal fights with a, 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 a WNBA team that she part owns. Uh, uh, and and I, I don't know how it plays locally, but I think nationally she's gotten the reputation of being not a great candidate. But I can certainly see from that point of view that if the Atlanta metro area has gained, you know, now this dominant, this super position in Georgia politics and Georgia state politics and the rising demographic that you want to battle for is the suburban woman then I guess that that certainly uh, is it, it makes it makes sense, at least on paper. Yeah, I I, I think certainly uh, before the fact, she looked like uh, 
an attractive candidate. Yeah. Now, I think the nicest thing people say about her is uh, she's still finding her political legs. Uh, yes. In, in the sense that she's not, you know, an accomplished politician. She's not an accomplished speaker. Uh, so, uh, you know, this this will be a real test for her. And, you know, uh, Raphael Warnock clearly is an accomplished speaker simply because that's what he does for a living. Yeah. And, you know, I appreciate the, the kind of uh, pulpit voice. Uh, of course, in his time on the pulpit, he said things that uh, – People can are now hold yeah. against him now now uh, now, 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 whether, now fair you know, game yeah. Uh, I think there's, from my point of view, there's a certain risk in doing that because I think you you uh, very much galvanize his supporters. Uh, but he's he has uh, laid himself open to that because you know in my neighborhood and I live uh, inside the perimeter in Atlanta, which you know the, the demarcation in Atlanta is ITP or OTP. Yeah, yeah. Can, can you can you can you can you explain a little that? More yeah. Conservative, ITP, more liberal. My neighborhood. Uh, I think there's one Trump sign, and you know, and they're you know widely outnumbered by you know Biden, Harris, and, and Warnock signs. Uh, but all of his signs say Reverend Raphael Warnock. He never ceases to uh, remind us that he is Reverend Warnock, and that you know he occupies the pulpit at Ebenezer Baptist, which is Martin Luther King's pulpit. So his sermons, he made them fair game. Yeah. Yeah. And we, yeah, uh, he's you know, he's not he, he is on the left, even in the black church. So even even uh, along, you know, if, if we're going to to map out the political allegiances of uh, 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 the, the, the black church scene in the southeast, he is on yeah. the, the political left of that community. He's, he's on the theological and political left of, of, of uh, the, the, the black theological scene. Mm -hmm. uh, and. You know, that doesn't mean he is, uh, you know, kind of unacceptable to, uh, you know, the, the vast majority of, of, of black voters. But, uh, you know, there are plenty of uh, black pastors who uh, wouldn't necessarily embrace the, the kinds of rhetoric that he uses from the pulpit. I want to get into kind of more general stuff about uh, the suburbs, but but before I do, let me just ask you a question that might sound incredibly stupid, but uh, uh, I, I I do want to you know, ask somebody who's uh, educated in this field whether or not it's an issue. Uh, from my perspective, growing up specifically with city dwelling folk in a bygone era, the idea of somebody running as a reverend for a statewide office like senator of the United States, specifically on the left, would have been looked at as like, oh, this is horrible. This is this is a mixing of of church and state that 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 we don't want. Now, obviously, that nine times out of 10 would have usually been something that would be describing a Republican politician and not a Democratic politician. But is there any stickiness uh, uh there with with the idea of somebody with a, a a reverend a titled reverend running for statewide office amongst a a liberal voting base uh do you remember reverend jesse jackson i remember reverend jesse jackson i do i do now okay, he was, he was, so sli there, he was slightly mean, he before was a, my time uh, you know a plausible candidate for the presidency yeah uh, there was also uh a Catholic priest in Massachusetts who was a, a longtime U.S. congressman. Uh, I think his name was Robert Drynan. 
uh, liberal Democrat. Yep. Uh, you know, Andrew Young, mayor of Atlanta, also Reverend Andrew. Uh, Reverend. Young. Okay. So, so I, you know, I, I, I think first of all, and I, you know, this is getting outside my area of expertise. Uh, sure. The, the the distance between religion and politics in the black church is 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 not the same as in the in the popular mind. And then I would also go on to say that uh, there are Supreme Court decisions that uh, uphold the the notion from the Constitution that there is there cannot be a religious test for office holding, and one of the religious one of the religious tests there cannot be is that someone who uh, has been ordained uh, cannot run. There was, I think, a, a Tennessee state law that uh, sought to pr prohibit someone from running for office because because they were ordained. ordained. Ah, okay. Uh, and then just one last example. So you know, I've, I've chosen examples largely from the from the left and from the Democratic side. Uh, Mike Huckabee. Yeah, Reverend Mike Huckabee. Now he didn't play that up, but so you know, we thought of him as Mike Huckabee. Yeah, but he was an ordained Baptist minister. Yeah, but that, and he and he went statewide office uh, yeah. uh, to become governor. Okay, good. Yeah. Uh, so it was a stupid question. Let's let's go ahead and get into uh, uh, the the definition of the suburbs. When we say because uh, because this is what I love about what we like to do here on on the show is uh, everybody who's then gonna watch on runoff night or they're they're gonna know all the counties. They're gonna know what we're talking about. So when when you say Atlanta suburbs. Specifically, what are we talking about? Well, I mean, there there, there are two definitions, and, and uh, what I wrote about in the article that you uh, you read were the, the the core suburbs, the big ones. Yeah, and that's Fulton County, which is Atlanta, and some of the, Atlanta and the north and uh, more affluent suburbs to the north, uh, DeKalb County, which is the kind of traditional close-in suburban county. It's a majority black county now. Uh -huh. uh, your listeners. The, the closest analog I can think of for your listeners might be Prince George's County in the Washington, D.C. area. OK. Uh, and Gwinnett County, uh, which for a time had the title as fastest growing uh, county in the country. But that's it's a it's a mature county now. OK. And Cobb County. Those are the four close in. And then uh, others are, uh, you know, 20 years ago, you would have called them exurban, but they are now suburban. Uh, so the, I don't know precisely the, uh, population of the metro area. I don't keep, keep track of it, sure. but it's certainly, uh, north of 4 million and may, and, and, and larger than that, the, uh, those four counties in 2012, two of them, DeKalb and Fulton, uh, gave a majority of their votes and sometimes a very pronounced majority of their votes to Barack Obama. Okay. Uh, Mitt Romney won Gwinnett and won Cobb in 2012. Okay. Now, the, it was not a, a huge win in either case, but uh, he was, uh, Romney was quite competitive in those two suburban, big suburban counties and uh, winning others, but competitive in, 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 those are the four biggest population centers in the state. Yeah. You know, and the, the order, uh, let me, we don't have the numbers here. Uh, Fulton certainly is the biggest. I think Gwinnett second, uh, Cobb third, DeKalb fourth. And I, I'm not 100% certain of the third and fourth, but sure, it's sure. those two. Uh, 
and those four counties account for roughly 35 percent of the uh, of the presidential vote this time and typically they they do so 35 percent of the vote contained in those four counties as late as 2012 republicans were competitive in two of them could win in two of them yeah uh not so in 2016 and most emphatically not so in 2020 and now, i i in preparation for this, I did a little bit of uh, uh, digging around. And okay. what I would say is if you look at, uh, you know, Mitt Romney in those four core counties got 533,000 votes in 2012. In 2020, uh, Donald Trump, from an electorate that was significantly uh, larger, got 527,000 votes from those four counties. Oh, geez. So he he went down 6,000 over the over eight years. He, he was it was worse in, in for him in 2016, but went down uh, 6,000. By contrast, Barack Obama in in uh, 2012 got 759,000 votes in those four counties. In 2020. Joe Biden got 1.15 million votes in those four counties. Good, great, googly moogly. All right, so so, so that, he basically he more than doubled Trump, whereas, yeah. you know, it in Romney's case it was more like a kind of you know uh, 60 40. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh, it's it, it's bad in the in the the core suburban counties, and then if you look at the you know the 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 classic. American picture is uh, red urban areas or red metropolitan areas surrounded by, as as liberals are wont to say, blue empty spaces. But you know, islands of red and a sea of blue. Yeah. Uh, if you look at the twenty five, I think there are twenty five counties in Georgia that have a population of over a hundred thousand. So that's basically everything you would call a city in Georgia. Yeah. So you know, Augusta, Savannah. Athens, Macon, yeah, Macon, uh, Albany, Valdosta, uh, you know, a couple of others, and those. I, I looked at that too, and so in in 2012, Mitt Romney got 728,000 votes in the uh, non-core Atlanta big county. Okay, uh, Trump in 2020 got 875,000 votes in those in those non-Atlanta big counties. So he did relatively well. But here's excuse me 875. Uh Obama got 577,000 in 2012 and uh Biden got 827,000. So Biden has almost made up the yeah. gap outside of the core Atlanta. And the way I would put it is what the 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 the, the Trump I don't know if it's a strategy, but the, the the effect of Trump is to trade everything outside the cities yeah. for what's in the cities. And that's not a good trade. <laughs> or it, it, I would put it this way. In, in 2012, again, if you look at Obama's advantage in the four core counties as opposed to Romney's advantage in the non-metro, that is to say everything that isn't 100,000, a county of 100,000. Romney's up fifty six thousand votes in that trade. Yeah, so it's a it's a it's it's an okay trade for him. But if you go to twenty twenty, uh, Biden's four core versus Trump's non metro, Biden's up ninety four thousand. 
so, so it's in a, it's an increasingly bad bargain. It, it is trade uh, non-metro rural votes for metro votes. It, it also kind of seems, at least in terms of how we discuss some of this stuff, that we might be fundamentally uh, sort of at, if not a sea change, forced to recognize a change that's been there a long time, and that is the behavior of suburban counties that seem to be voting much more like the cities than let's say they were in the 60s uh when when the idea was uh that you were uh, uh the, the the suburban areas were like oh no we're, we're directly fleeing the city so we want to vote different than them it seems like at least in this election that we just saw that there's not really a big difference in in terms of the Atlanta voter and those that maybe live 20 minutes outside. I, I think that's been true for I think that's been at least somewhat true for a while. Yeah, and I, I would explain it this way. First of all, there is uh, what some people describe as the suburbanization, suburbanization of poverty. So okay. when you gentrify a city, what happens to the people who live in the city? Well, they have to go somewhere. And sometimes where they end up going is close in suburbs. And again, you see this. Uh, if you if you cross the line from D.C. into Prince George's County, uh, you'll see that the sort of close in part of, of Prince George's County doesn't look very different from, let's say, northeast Washington or, or, or southeast Washington. Uh, so there's some of that. I mean, you, you do have you know Section 8 housing in in uh, in suburban counties and you also have. Uh, you know, within. A ten-minute drive of where I live, so I live in a you know a, a relatively affluent uh, suburban-looking neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, within a ten-minute drive of, of of where I live, there is Atlanta's Chinatown, which is a suburban Chinatown. And yeah. uh, you might uh, some of your listeners might recall uh, a novel written by Tom Wolfe, which was set in, at least in part in Atlanta, called A Man in Full. Uh huh. And there's a, su- a suburb, which used to be a sort of an old industrial suburb. There used to be a GM plant not far away. It's called Shambly. And Wolf referred to it in the, in the novel as Shambodia. <laughs> because it's, it, it, had, it has our Chinatown. Yeah. Uh, and then right next to the Chinatown is uh, some, uh, a neighborhood of older apartment buildings. And uh, all the uh, merchants in that area are uh, Hispanic. So you what what you have in in especially in close in suburbs now are not not just you know section eight housing so uh, impoverished people but you also have immigrant groups uh, from uh, Latin and South America and immigrant groups from Asia so that's that's one of the things that's happened to some of the suburbs so it's not just that people on my street change their minds although I'm sure there's some of that too or there's been a generational change and there's some of that too. But demographically, suburbs aren't, you know, homogeneously one race, one income level. And that's that's a development that's been going on for quite some time. You know, and, and uh, I, I, I almost wonder also, A, I think that there's an element of the nationalization of politics, which has certainly been a thing that has happened over the last uh, decade, uh, decade or so, really. I mean, the Internet and, and cable news, probably the biggest uh, uh, movers there, but also the idea that in our modern world, the lifestyle of somebody living in the suburbs 
is probably not all that different from the lifestyle of somebody living in the city that there's there's been so much build out of restaurants, bars, gig deliveries, Ubers. The 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 concept of even going into town and coming back is less of a hassle if you can get an Uber there and back uh, in, in in a way that it, it probably wasn't uh before. I, I I think that there is just a a a, a blending now which made it all the more puzzling when Donald Trump is going out and saying that he's going to protect everybody's suburban dream when when I, I don't know if that's necessarily the messaging that that sort of would have rang the most true for those specific voters. Well, actually, I think there's there's something to the, the Trump messaging, but it's it's not as it, it again, it depends on uh, which side of the the, the, the fence you're on. I love the fact that within you know, a 10 minute drive of my house, staying in the suburbs, there are two craft breweries. Yes. I can go fill a growl. Yep. Or I can, uh, there's one place that does, uh, it, it's an interesting combination. It's, it's, it's uh, craft brew and sushi. And, and, uh, and that, that used to be uh, uh, kids, younger listeners. Uh, there was an entire lifetime for people that that kind of hip, quirky thing was the exclusive domain of like eight cities in America. Like that was yeah. like a thing that you would take a trip to go see. And now you you have a choice that you have one of two craft breweries and one of them does sushi. And and they're and they're you know suburban. Exactly. So yeah, there's there there is that. Uh, what Trump was referring to is something that the Obama administration tried to do, which was force every jurisdiction uh, that received federal urban funding to accommodate uh, public housing, yeah. or mixed in, public mixed in income housing. And I do think, and you know, again, my, my neighbors uh, don't talk about it in the kind of uh, crude terms that would have been, uh, that they would have talked about it, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. But we single uh, family dwelling people don't like living next to apartments. Yeah. And what the Obama administration was trying to do was basically produce the kind of mixed income, uh, mixed kind of housing, uh, urban developers utopia or urban uh, sort of new urbanist utopia everywhere. Yeah. And, uh, People don't like it because it messes up the schools and people don't like it because it messes up traffic. At least that's, you know, that's that's the way they'll talk about it. I mean, and, and, so and when, property value, property value, yeah. right? So, property so value is, I mean, look, like, if people didn't absolutely. care about property value, then there wouldn't be HOAs. And if there weren't HOAs, then then we wouldn't have nextdoor.com, right? Yeah. So it's like these are so, all connected. I, you know, I do, I do think that, 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 that the, the Trump appeal is an appeal to protect, uh, you know, everyone's so-called uh single family home dream yeah uh now there are all the subtext and and you know different people will listen to it different different ways sure. i know in my neighborhood the uh the big issue is the way this the the city is redeveloping a, a local park and uh it you know my neighborhood is full of people who have biden signs and they're when they talk about being anti-development, they talk about being anti-development for all sorts of good environmentalist uh, reasons. Yeah. But the other thing they're doing when they're talking about development is they're making it harder for people who don't live in our neighborhood to use that park. Yeah. 
and they don't want to they don't want to admit what's going on there but that's that's what uh, it is and, it, and I don't say that's all it is. I think there, there's a kind of genuine environmentalism sure. and so on. But uh, it's also, it, it's just everyone who owns a home uh, likes to think of it as his or her castle. Indeed. And Trump was uh, attempting to appeal to that. So we do have, you know, I, so I think part of what we said is there's a, uh, the, the suburbs are much less homogeneous than they once were. And uh, there is also a kind of, uh, it depends on where your money comes from. Uh, oh. in the, the, the article I wrote you know, uh, compared Atlanta to the, uh, the Northern Virginia suburbs. Yeah. Uh, which are, uh, you know, everyone in the Northern Virginia suburbs uh, makes his or her money uh, manipulating symbols, either <laughs> uh, mathematical symbols or, or words. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, wealth that comes from that is different than wealth that comes from manufacturing. Yeah. And so, you know, if you think of uh, where people make money now, it's in, it's in tech and it's in, in, in finance. And those zip codes, you know, the, the wealthiest zip codes in the country have recently turned uh, blue. Yeah. And so... And it, you know, the a wealthy person in, you know, uh, somewhere in Iowa who, uh, you know, manages a manufacturing plant is going to be very different from a wealthy person in, uh, you know, Palo Alto or a wealthy person in Austin or a wealthy person in the northern suburbs of Atlanta who uh, makes his or her money from tech. Sure. Yeah. And so I think. In, in a lot of different ways, the, uh, the the source of wealth matters, and in, in a big city like Atlanta, you're, uh, you're, you're it's not really a manufacturing city. Uh, you know there are, and you you do have uh, some uh, red affluent neighborhoods, but I think a lot of the uh, the affluent neighborhoods are people who uh, you could find in Palo Alto or uh, you know outside of Austin, Texas, or any other tech center. And sure. they're going to uh, their, their views are somewhat different. I mean, I, I've been struck in recent years by uh, people running for uh, st uh, for state legislative office here. And no one in my neighborhood really is interested in, in you know, the culture war is not really at the top of their agenda. Yeah. But it, it's interesting. The Republicans who run here aren't culture warriors. because They yeah. know better. Yeah. The Democrats are. Because they know that uh, taking that stance is going to is is has no blowback whatsoever. Like no one's going to to torpedo them for taking so, a, you know, a if stance I, if I'm on the a, culture. Uh, yeah, you know, our, our current state rep is is uh, is a is a gay man. Yeah, and we've been represented until uh, you know, mostly by Republicans until uh, uh, we've had a. a a, Dem a Republican, a Democrat, a uh, Republican, and a, now a Democrat again. And, you know, the gay man ran as a, a, you know, sort of profoundly in favor of, of uh, same-sex marriage. Yeah. Uh, there's no one in politics in this area who's going to oppose that. Sure. So he, so he, he uh, just so, gets you know, to own why, that why corner. Why even bother saying it? Yeah. Uh, but it was, you know, it was very prominent in his appeal. Um, and that's just, again... Republicans here are going to uh, behave differently than they would uh, in a place where the 
you know, the principal constituency of people who attend uh, Baptist churches. Uh, all right. So I, I want to ask you this question about the Ossoff Purdue race, because while the the Warnock Leveler race that we mentioned earlier was a, a lot of people are were involved and you can draw your own conclusions because while Warnock got the biggest percentage, uh, if you combine the two conservatives, then then it looked like the Republicans do have the advantage there, even with a statewide Biden win in the Purdue Ossoff race. If this were the same it is around the country, a first-past-the-post contest, then Purdue would be the senator from Georgia. He he comes in slightly under 50%, and so therefore he also goes to a special runoff election on January 5th. How did Purdue perform in those same Atlanta uh, counties uh, that Trump just absolutely got blown out in? Did he do any better? Marginal. And I mean margin, like, uh, you know, a few thousand votes better. Okay. Uh, if you go back to uh, 2016, where Johnny Isaacson is running for re-election. So, again, you have an incumbent Republican running for re-election. Isaacson significantly outperforms uh, Trump in, in those suburbs, in those big suburban counties. Yeah. What And, you know, my thought at the time was, yes, a, a, a generic Republican does better than Trump in the suburbs. He's not going to win the suburbs, but he will perform well enough in the suburbs that his advantage in the rest of the state will carry him to victory. Yeah. Uh, what happened is in the four years subsequent to that, between 2016 and 2020, the amount of daylight between the generic Republican and Donald Trump really uh, diminished to almost nothing. Yeah. I mean, there are a few Republicans uh, like Ben Sass who will uh, and, and Mitt Romney who will be critical. Yeah, but but you uh, you 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 had to you had to stake distance. out. Yeah, you had to stake out an oppositional position, yeah. uh, and, and and even that isn't necessarily very generic Republican. Generic Republicans are usually kind of quiet, and they they vote on taxes, and 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 that's it. And then they go home and raise money. So I think what happened in this case is. Uh, well, Purdue's not from the, the metro area, so but he did a little better than than uh, Trump in the suburbs, but not appreciably. Certainly, what happened the, the reason there was a lot of daylight between Trump uh, between uh, Purdue and Ossoff is that uh, Ossoff really underperformed Biden. Got you, and that's just because a lot of people voted for the top of the ticket and didn't bother voting below the top. You know, they, they left 100,000 votes roughly on the table. You know, yeah. A little less than that. But, um, so, you know, the yes, if there were, if it were first past the post, we'd be talking about, you know, the re-election of Senator Purdue. I think it's very much, uh, you know, anyone's race in both races. A lot of people are saying, and this sounds plausible to me, that it's it's a two for one way or the other. Uh, yeah, that, that, so you that either, either like both either Republicans yeah. or both Democrats. There's not going to be uh, a, a split result unless, and this is possible, I suppose, there are voters who, uh, let's say, go to the polls and vote for Purdue but not Leffler. You know, possible. Yeah, or vote for Warnock and not Ossoff. Also possible. Uh, all right, last you know, question. I, uh, yeah. 
when it is said, and we have heard this a lot, and we will likely hear this right up until January 5th, that runoff elections are low turnout, and specifically runoff elections in Georgia are low turnout. What does that mean for those super populous counties? Because I would presume that if Democrats win statewide by greatly turning out these four counties and it's low turnout, then that is not a great recipe for success for them. Well, yeah, historically, uh, runoffs are low turnout. There's never been a runoff like this. Okay. So, uh, so you would, you would, so, you would debate that premise that, 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 well, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, I don't think it's going to be as high turnout as, as this was, which was, you know, impressively high, but it will be higher than most. Yeah. Uh, it will depend on, you know, which campaigns and which parties uh, turn out their base. And both parties or campaigns have parts of their base that historically have not performed well in terms of turnout and in terms of runoffs. So here's the, you know, my, my joke is the highest propensity voters are people who are older and people who are, are better educated. And they're the ones who are going to be most likely to turn out. It's yeah. also true that people who are most ideologically most likely to turn out. So if you look at old people, okay, they all watch Fox News. Again, caricature. Sure. But they're they're going to turn out for the Republicans. The well-educated, again, caricature will turn out for the Democrats. So it's you know different. Th those high propensity voters cut in different ways. Yeah. The low propensity voters cut in different ways. You have you know Trump's kind of populist working class constituency. Again, typically not politically active. Uh, they're the, the, the rural constituency. Yep. And then you have the uh, sort of lower income, uh, multi-ethnic uh, Democratic constituency, also not necessarily high propensity. There are a lot of votes in Atlanta and in DeKalb County. DeKalb County's turnout, even this time, was quite low by comparison to the other states. Something like 58% in DeKalb and anywhere from the mid-60s to the low 70s elsewhere in the state. So... I think it's going to be a task to get low propensity voters for either set of candidates to the polls. Yeah. Uh, and you might say the Democrats will have historically until this election relied more heavily on low propensity voters uh, than the Republicans. have. But the Trump coalition, which mm -hmm. is the, you know, the winning has been the winning coalition uh, in a lot of places consists in part of low propensity voters. So it is who's going to get the base out, whose base is bigger, uh, and who can turn out, uh, you know, do a little better than the other in terms of the, uh, the mass of low propensity voters. Uh, so I'm, you know, people say, and, and you know, the, the sort of, uh, people say Georgia still, uh, you know, right leaning. And I say, you know, I said in an ordinary year without Trump on the ballot, probably so. Yeah. Still uh, without Trump on the ballot in a special election, I'm not sure that the general propensity of Georgia to, to lean a, a, just a tad right of center at this point. It's a purple state. It's not a red state anymore. Uh, the question in the future is whether it becomes Virginia, which is, you know, went from uh, purple to, to blue. blue. Yeah. Or North Carolina, which went from red to purple. Yeah. And North Carolina seems to be staying purple at the moment. Uh, so, you know, I, I I wouldn't 
bet much money on any outcome in the uh, in the, the January 5th election. Now, I think uh, Purdue is probably you know, better outside the city, outside the metro area than he is inside the metro area. Uh, Ossoff is not a gifted campaigner. Uh, Which is amazing because he sure uh, gets a lot of money thrown at him. Uh, yeah. uh, somebody thinks uh, yeah, that I think he's... Warnock is probably the most gifted politician of the, of the four of them. I, I don't think it's much of an argument. Just from my yeah. perspective, watching, uh, you know, Purdue does seem like right off the rack at, at Brooks Brothers Republican, right? And yeah. and uh, uh, Ossoff seems like an empty suit. Leffler, I mean, just a, a, a comedy of errors uh, uh, for her. And I guess there's the argument that, like you said, maybe she's finding her voice and she's got some element of electricity that she could channel. But Warnock, to me, seems like the clearest communicator and the one that identifies his strengths and hides his weaknesses the best. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, in, in some way, the, uh, the, 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 the competition, at least in that race, is between uh, Leffler trying to portray, portray him as you know, the second coming of Jeremiah Wright, you know, the, 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 the Obama's pastor. Sure. And yeah. uh, Warnock trying to uh, portray himself as the guy next door walking his beagle. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I don't know which of those caricatures is going to stick. Well, I also don't know. Uh, I guess th this will be my last question to you. Uh, a, a big consistent element of both Republicans campaigns are appealing to something that does seem to stand the test of time. And that is Americans distrust of one party having all the power. Uh, and so you're a lot of Chuck Schumer saying now we take Georgia and then the country and stuff like that, that this is uh, uh, the, the ready-made excuse for every a uh, uh, Biden voter that would have voted for a Republican, but they hate Trump so much. The never Trumpers is, but do you really want the Democrats to have all three houses or do you want to check on Biden? Uh, is that something that do you think is compatible with these regions that we're talking about? I, I, I think that's the argument that works in, in, in uh, among the people who voted for Mitt Romney and then voted for uh, Clinton and, and Biden. Yeah. Or voted for Mitt Romney, reluctantly voted for Trump, and then just got sick of it after four years. Uh, that might still work with them. I think if if I think that's the only argument that works. And the problem there is, uh, you know, Trump won't go away. Well, uh, uh, I mean, he, he's, he he will be gone after January twenty twentieth. But I mean, I, I that I think is a fairly safe assumption at the moment. Sure, uh, but yeah. I don't. I, so, in in some sense, you know, the 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 Democratic argument is, but these people are Trump, and the Republican argument is, but these people are, you know, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, and you know, there are people who have aversions to all three of those figures. <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, and you know, the Trumps, and if they're thinking straight, Trump is gone. Well, yeah, and, I, I, at least at least at least for the Schumer time that they're there. yeah, at least for the time that they are going to be voting on January 5th. Uh, you know, the, ah, man, I'll tell you what. Fascinating. And and now we know yes. so much more about this race. Thanks to Joseph Nippenberg. Of course, he is a uh, professor of politics at Oglethorpe University. Uh, uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Glad to be with you. Have a nice day. And that'll wrap us up for today. Thanks again to Professor Joseph Knippenberg for giving us a little context to the X's and O's of how somebody wins statewide in Georgia. This is brought to you by our Titanic $10 tier in part. They are as follows. I love you, TNT. Dr. G, the Jen, Kathy Mack, Headphones Neil, Onward to Georgia, Captain Bunzo, Jay Sulu, Dallas Danger Taylor, Middle Age Mike, Bud, what happened to Tex? Get a bucket and a mop. Cujo, Idris, Jacob Wilson, Berkeley Steven, Justin Egan, .com, Junkie, Diana, Sunny Smiles, Tempest, Fugit, Jason with Magnolia Delta Credit Card Processing. Alec, Government Unfiltered, Andres, Archie, Darren, Adam, Olin and Angela, DL, Kyle, Chad, Nomadic, Miranda, Jenny, Robert, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Brad, Richard, Just Another Pilot, Frozen Summers, Jay, Pink, and Andrew. If you would like to join their ranks, then please head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. In the meantime, one more time for the email. I hoard this email uh, address out enough this episode, so we'll throw it out one more time. TheYoungAmerican at gmail.com. You want to follow everything we do under the PX3 banner, including our newsletter, including our live streams, including our politics, then you go to PX3 Tweets on Twitter. You want to join our Discord, a 24-7 community of, of like-minded people here on uh, uh, that, that think the same way about politics, then you can go over there, bit.ly slash jury discord, J-U-R-Y-D-I-S-C-O-R-D. But until next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics. Others talk about politics and still more. They're out here talking about politics, but this, this is the only show that talks about how Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this broker. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.